For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. Whew. It's uh, later in the afternoon, about 5 o'clock on Tuesday. And I just went through the Haftarah Schneimaker Echotagum, which I do. And I'm going to say, try to catch up. I'll say something about the Haftarah. See, being sponsored by the Oberstein's Rabbi Mrs. Oberstein. Wrote a little when I was in the hospital. They're doing one in the Zechus that I should have a full Shalema. I certainly second that motion. <laughs> I certainly need a full Shalema. Um, can't do it as long as I usually do it, but let me take a shot at it in this week's um, Haftorah, which I just went through, and that's from Yechezkel Ezekiel, Ezekiel 29, kind of famous. And um, here you have the problem of trying to uh, coordinate history on the one hand and Bible on the other. Uh, sometimes you see Nevuas and things like this, and you uh, they describe political events. And they're kind of true in the broad sense, but it's hard, at least for me, to locate them in the narrow sense. But probably the the problem is in the paucity of our archaeological evidence. So without using fancy words, today's Haftorah is about Egypt, because we're doing Shemos Ve'er Babashach, the encounter of the Jews and the torture of the Jews in Egypt. Egypt and the Chumash is presented as the enemy of the Jewish people. Um, the Egypt has two aspects to this enmity, one of which lasted only in the time of Moshe, uh, you know, in the time of the Chumash, and the other one went on for much longer. The one that went on in the time of the Chumash was a physical torture, the Shibud Mitzrayim, the slavery and all the things that we know went along with it, the physical torture. I mean, how many Jews were? Were killed, how many babies were killed, you know, it's crazy. However, that's one side of it. That's what we call the Golas Goof. But the other side is the seductive attraction that Egypt has always exercised in one form or another on the Jewish mind. And that's what we call Golas HaNefesh, or the Memtesh Tuma, as they like to refer to it, in which separate from the Physical tortures, but Timali hearts of some. Egypt really got into the Jews, <clears throat> and if not for the fact that uh, you know God inspired the Egyptians, I repeat, God inspired Egyptians to reduce us to slavery and torture us to the point that we couldn't stand being in Egypt anymore. Even though otherwise, short of that, there would have been no move to leave Egypt. Um, but the, the, even when the Jews left Egypt. Egypt did not leave them. And that, of course, is manifested in the biblical story where they always want to go back throughout the 40 years in the desert. It's manifested in the fact that they make a, gold, a golden kiff when, they, when, they're, when they're nervous. And it's manifested in the fact that there has to be one of the third, 613 mitzvahs, don't go back to Egypt. That's pretty sick. You know, it has to be a mitzvah you know, they return to Egypt, which means in the absence of that, most Jews would want to go back to Egypt.
and in point of actual historical fact, Egypt is one of those very few countries which always had a substantial Jewish community throughout history until very recently. Only now are we living in a most unusual time after the foundation of the State of Israel and especially the 56 and 67 wars when the Egyptians themselves physically expelled the Jewish population, you know, 99%. Now it's a funny situation with the new government and the tourism and all that, but they don't want Jews moving and living there. Uh, but really, a Jew shouldn't want to live there. Nevertheless, as I said, we all know, historical circumstances were such that many Jews found it desirable and advantageous to live in Egypt, including Maimonides, and many famous rabbis and things like that, real frummies, uh, for one reason or another. I mean, usually because political conditions, uh, relatively speaking, were better in Egypt than they were elsewhere. And economic conditions, usually relatively speaking, were better in Egypt than elsewhere. They always had a very prosperous economy. Anybody wants to get a little bit of an idea of the constant prosperity of Egypt under the old regime, before the modern times, before the, the new republic of today, um, read the Bartonori's letters described in very interesting intelligent detail the extremely fertile and productive e economy of Egypt in the 15th century it's only now the good lord has cursed them with a baby boom so there's tremendous poverty extraordinary poverty and Egypt could get screwed tomorrow and the, the Nile could dry up I'm very serious about this because Ethiopia and Kenya and the other countries you know, say we want the water so Egypt today is in a worse situation. But if you're talking historically, so Egypt always was seductive and uh, Jews found themselves attracted to it, either to move there or in other ways. The prophet Yecheskel, who's the Haftorah today, lived in the time of Bayez Rishon. He, he lives at the end, time of the Chorban. Remember, Yecheskel is from round one. He's from Gauls Yechania when the elites were taken from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, who left behind Tzidkio and the others and said, don't rebel. Of course, they stupidly rebelled, but I mean, that's what happened. And um, therefore, he knows the Egypt of his time, but he is prophesying. And for some reason, his prophecy gets in the Torah. So it has a permanent interest. And so when we read it today, you know, it's it's always the case that you can identify a Nevuah with an event back then, but you can also identify a Nevuah with an event that hasn't happened yet, because that's the nature of prophecy. It's not bound to any one specific time or place. I know people, many people don't get what I just said, but if, honestly, I'm not, I don't have enough strength to explain that at, at, at length. All I'm saying is, that this is a very famous prophecy of the downfall of Egypt, but in a very unusual way, which does match um, the history, although, although not exactly. I'll tell you what I mean. Egypt in the ancient times was one of the world powers. This dynasty, that dynasty, I think Moses and Aaron was in the time of the 19th dynasty, if I remember correctly. And Egypt was one of the world powers. When I say world powers, I mean in the sense of who dominates the Middle East. The great Egyptian pharaoh conquerors, like Thutmose and Ramses, they were conquering in, in Syria. 
I think if you go, many know, if you go to Megiddo, which is near Israel, the Egyptian fortifications and stuff like that, left over from Tutmosha. Tutmosha means the Pharaoh who called himself the son of Tut, the, god, the Egyptian god Tut. Moshe means the son. He's like my father and son. Um, but there's Ramses or Ra Moshe, the son of Ra, and there's some other famous uh, military pharaohs who extended Egyptian power well beyond Egypt because from the point of view of Egypt, it's a matter of national security that they should control the buffer zone, what you and I call Israel and Aram, Israel and Syria. Makes sense from their point of view. The only thing is, I'm Jewish, so it's not my point of view. But it makes sense from their point of view. Now, um, throughout the biblical period, Egypt therefore viewed an independent Jewish kingdom, like the kingdom of Yehud and Yisrael, with uh, jaundiced eyes. They hated the Jews. On the other hand, they were too intelligent not to use them. And they used them by um, by always seducing the Jewish leadership in the two kingdoms to join Egypt whenever there was a war between Egypt on one hand and another military power on the other. For the purposes of this podcast, it's always Ashur or Babel. And later Paras, but the Jews weren't a power then. So Ashur and Babel, I mean Ashur, the Assyrian Empire, which is northern Iraq, enters the Middle Eastern scene around the time of Ahab and Omri, and remains there until it's wiped out by Babel, which is in the time of, uh, let's say, Yeshio, if you can follow that. And then Babel was the top dog for the next hundred and so years. And that means that they ruled and dominated the Middle East. But Egypt was always afraid of them, naturally. And so they always played off the local little kingdoms to cynically to fight on behalf of Egypt, even though Egypt screws them and leaves them in the lurch. Uh, it's a famous theme in, in the prophets. And that's what cynical nations do. I remember one of the Byzantine emperors wrote a book called The Science of Governing the Barbarians, which means you get one to fight the other. Don't let them join up. Always provoke controversy among each other. That way they're always busy fighting each other. They won't have time to fight you. So not exactly, but something along those lines, Egypt did to um, the Jews. On the other hand, it is true, as you know, that one of the 613 mitzvahs is, you're not allowed to hate an Egyptian. So there's like this negative-positive relationship towards Egypt, which is reflected in our Haftorah today in the prophecy. You hate them, but it's not exactly... Nazi Germany either. And there were times when the Egyptians treated the Jews good, as you know. So it's very tricky. And the point I want to say is, therefore you have this very strange prophecy, which goes like this. Egypt will be a great power, and then they won't. They'll be destroyed by someone else. It seems in the Haftorah, it's Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, but, you know, you could read it differently. And listen to what I'm saying. And the land will be like nuked, be like Hiroshima, that will be destroyed for 40 years. But at the end of 40 years, just like there was something called Shivatzion, that the Jews in time Ezra, Nehemiah, and all that came back to Israel, there'll be something called Shivat Mitzrayim. That's enough to her today. 
that somehow or other the Egyptians will come back to Egypt. However, in a parallel form, just as when the Jews came back in the time of Ezra Nehemiah, Zerubbabel and all that, they were in a much weakened state than they had been when they were on, had their own kingdoms, David and Malk and all that. Similarly, Egypt, when they return, will come back in a much weakened state and they won't be a great power anymore. And the extraordinary thing is that historically this works. It doesn't work exactly in the way the prophet says in the Haftorah that it'll be a result of the Nebuchadnezzar invasion because Egypt was a great power for a while after the Nebuchadnezzar invasion. But not too long later, this taka worked. Egypt uh, leaves the scene. Not exactly the way the prophet describes it in our Haftorah, but somewhere along those lines. Understand this well. The, the imagery is very powerful. God apparently doesn't like Pharaoh because Pharaoh is a megalomaniac. Okay? And he says, you're a great alligator. Crocodile. When I, when I, there's a difference between the two I always forget. You're the great crocodile in the Nile River. You see, I made the river and I made myself. That's the ultimate in megalomania. That I wasn't a nivra, I created myself. And therefore he says, in a very vivid scene, which means, I'll take you, the alligator, who is very dangerous and lethal in a river situation, and I'll pick you up and drop you in the middle of the desert. And an alligator is helpless and dies in the desert. Okay? That you know. Then you're eaten by the uh, all the creatures around you. So in other words, that's a good metaphor for saying you can have a powerful situation, but you'll have the wrong kind of military weapons, and therefore you'll be helpless. They always quote as an example, though it's not 100% historically true, but I'll say this, and many will know what I'm talking about, and that is, the Polish cavalry charged the German tanks in 1940, uh, 1939 when Hitler invaded. Well, duh, guys, it's not cavalry anymore. It's tanks. So, once upon a time, cavalry was a powerful military arm, but not in the age of mechanized warfare. So, that's another way of saying, I'll take an alligator and remove him out of out of here. Um, where is it over here? Uh... I'll take you, the alligator, and drop you in the desert. And all the other fish. So you can have the biggest shark, the most dangerous whale. But if you beach him, you drop him in the land, and give him an hour or two, however long it takes to die, the shark is helpless. Now, a shark is not helpless for a while. I've seen movies, I mean actual pictures, where these guys captured a shark, and the and the sailor went close to it, and the shark still had it and, 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 and killed the sailor. But, you know, let's say I picked up a shark, scientifically, and then dropped it on dry land somewhere. I don't know how long. I'm not a, a, a physiologist, physiologist. Let's say a day. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. Let's say 24 hours. That thing ain't going to survive 24 hours, I don't think. Right? And then at the end, it's helpless. It's dead because it got no water. So that's another way of saying... That you know your technology will be out of date, in which is in which case it's useless. So it's like 
you know, I'll attack you uh, as like typewriters today. You know what I mean? Uh, things that this, that the technology is rendered useless. Kodak camera. Uh, so that's how he describes what will happen in Egypt. So it indicates that that Egypt will, as, as I understand it, Egypt will be invaded by an army with a more up-to-date technology and that Egypt uh, ordinary power will be helpless. And then what does it say? Here's the point. And the land will be wiped out. That the land of Egypt will be desolate. Which means that um, from, you know, from the Canadian border to the to the Meta, to the Rio Grande, from uh, one end of the country to the other, okay. So it'd be it'd be something like a uh, like a nuclear. Um, if you took all the fish, and you all the fish and sea creatures, and dumped them in the middle of the Egyptian desert. Uh, they'll all die. And for 40 years, nothing will be there. You know, uh, something like that happened with, uh, I think in Salt Lake City, Salt Lake, they found a lot of fish left over from Noah's flood, you know, that kind of thing. The, I'll say it again. The most powerful sea creature is unbelievably powerful under the water, but it's helpless away from the water. You see? So that's the metaphor of this week's um, Parsha. And he says, The land will be desolate, will be, see, Egypt will have some kind of nuclear situation, and the country will be abandoned for 40 years. Now, I'll say it again, this kind of thing could happen today because of the lack of water. I don't follow the news so closely, and now that I'm sick, I definitely am not following the news. I don't have the kayak. But... Um, I know Egypt is a big crisis. There's not enough water. They have like 100 million people, which is too much. They have a baby boom in a not good way. And therefore, So Egypt will not be inhabitable because there'll be no water, it seems like. And it'll be among other nations. I'll say it again. I'm not the world's expert in this. But Africa and these places have a tremendous water problem. Uh, this is the climate change stuff that we hear about. I'm not into it, but it's not totally stupid. And you have overpopulated areas of the world with undersupply of water. And I'll tell you again, it's very risky to be in Egypt today to have a country of tens and tens of millions of people and like one place of water, the Nile River. Now, the Nile is big. I do understand that. But if anything ever happens in the Nile... These guys are up the creek without a paddle. They are in bad shape. That the whole area of North Africa will become, uh, you know, dry of water. And what will happen to Egypt? And they'll have their own gullus. So it's very weird because it's paralleling the Jews. They'll have their own gullus. But it took, as you know, the Gullus bubble was 70 years. The Gullus of the Mitzrayim will be 40 years. I will cause some, you know, Egyptian, uh, shall I use the word Zionist movement? 
uh, Egyptianist movement, and they'll return. The, the children of the survivors will return to Egypt, and they'll, they'll you know, be reconstituted as a nation with one big proviso, and that is, but they'll never again be a great nation. Uh, from then on, Egypt will be a mamlocha shvolo, a low nation. They'll never be great again. That, to me, is, is extremely fascinating because um, that happened. Think about what I'm about to tell you. Um, Egypt was one of the great powers in the ancient world, as we know. The pharaohs roamed among the world-leading monarchs. They're the ones who were battling the others, the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and all the rest of it. And sometimes they gave, as good, they gave as good as they got. The history of Egypt is very complex. There's a whole thing called Egyptology. And some pharaohs were pretty tough customers. You know, not all of them, but some were pretty tough customers. And I'll say it again. You can see, you know, the results of, of, of Egyptian victories in, in, in northern Syria against the Hittites and, and Kadesh and places like that. It's, it's really kind of interesting, um, at least to me. And the results are that Egypt was a player. Now, consider what I'm about to tell you. What happens not long after Yecheskel? Not exactly at that time, and not exactly in the way that he describes it, but in the broad picture, very much so. Egypt ceases permanently to be a great power. Since the time, let's say, of the Persians, uh, and afterwards, Egypt is always a province of someone else. They're ruled by someone else. Uh, by Persia, by Alexander the Great, then by Alexander's generals, the Ptolemy dynasty, then by the Romans, and then by the Muslims, and so forth and so on. The only time Egypt has come back on its own feet as an independent country was pretty much in the 1940s and 50s. Very recent. You know what I'm saying? It's very recent. Egypt as a completely independent country, even if I want to be generous and give it a, a hundred years beforehand under Khedives, that's a complicated story. But Egypt generally was a province of someone else. And they, they, they have a natural desire and tendency to go back to the megalomania. And when Egypt became a, an independent country, a truly independent country under Nasser, Nasser, I would say he's the one who got their actual independence. He immediately made a play those of us who are old enough to remember to have a neutrality movement, he should be the leader of it, and leader of the unaligned nations, and a mocker at the United Nations and all that, used to be a group of three. It was Nasser and uh, and, ne and Nehru of India, another Mamzer, and uh, Tito of Yugoslavia. These are names from 70 years ago. And let me assure you, in the time of Nasser, I'm talking the 50s, especially in the 60s, it looked like Egypt might be the number one power in the Middle East. And they were just going back to their natural way of wanting to be a mamlocha gedoyla. But it didn't happen. And today Egypt's in derailed, big time. They're, they have so many human uh, feeding problems and overpopulation and under, you know, food and water, especially the water, they are in bad shape. Egypt, like Israel, has to rely on billions every year from the United States of America. And from others. And even with it all, they got plenty of problems. 
So it's mamish what he said. He said the, the, the Egypt will rise again, but it'll be a mamalcha shvola. That's the amazing thing to me. Okay, um, it'll be a mamalcha. So forty years it'll be a, a like Hiroshima, and then they'll come back, and then it'll be mamalcha shvola. Min hamamlochas tia shvola v'lo tisnaseyur algam. It won't be a great nation again. And I, God, will make it that they can't boss anybody else around anymore. Now, why is God angry at Egypt? It doesn't say because of the slavery of Egypt. Because I said, but rather because they seduced the Jews. They won't be anymore a great power that they can seduce the Jews and be a masker of to the Jewish people. And then he goes on to say in the Haftorah, it mishes it together that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt. And God says to Nebuchadnezzar, um, I'm giving you Egypt as a place to sack and despoil because I'm angry at Egypt. And why is he angry at Egypt? Uh, so he says, Puloso, Asher Ba. As a reward for the the good action he did on my behalf, God says Nebuchadnezzar, which Rashi says that he attacked the city of Tyre in Phoenicia and wiped it out. God wanted him to do that. So I'll give you the bonus: you can sack Egypt. Okay, why? Because. Hashem says, I'm angry at what Egypt did to me. What did Egypt do to God? That they promised always and seduced the Jews to joining them in alliances against other countries, and they left them in the lurch. Okay? Now, it concludes by saying, The day that Egypt comes back, that will be a day of Matzmiach Karen Lebeis Yisrael like a Mashiach time of some sort for Klal I don't know what he's talking about, and Rashi doesn't know what he's talking about, because Rashi says, Lo shamati, So, and then Rashi goes to speculate, you know, what it might be, which I'm not going to go into. Like I said, I don't have this Kayach. But I'll say in general, that today, uh, Israel's a country, of course, Egypt is always out there trying to seduce them in various bad ways. Uh, they're, they're not a mamlocha gedola, although they sure want to be. They're a mamlocha gedola in terms of population, but they're overpopulated. And the regime that's in charge over there is barely holding on against the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. So they have extreme political instability held down by a ruthless police state. So you don't know what it means where Egypt will do well and Israel will have uh, like a matzmiach keren Yeshua. So uh, that hasn't happened. So when I see something like that, I say he's not talking only about Nebuchadnezzar, but he's talking about something for the Messianic future. So if you're ever looking at a time where Egypt and Israel will both be successful, each in its own way, uh, that'll be a sign, apparently, of the coming of Mashiach in some way or another. Uh, that is the strange but fascinating Haftar that we have today. Again, I want to thank the Obersteins for sponsoring this. And I do hope, as they said, that I'll be Zelcha to Rafuashalima.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.